It's the 26th of August, and welcome to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. We broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central Time, every Wednesday from the first week of May to the first week of September. Uh, we have certified crop advisor credits available for today's episode, and new this week, uh, we have restricted use pesticide credits available for Michigan certified applicators. Um, so if you are either a CCA or you're from Michigan and you, you want your rub credits, then you can put your email and your name in the chat box, and then we will email you what you need when we're all done. So my name is Ben Phillips from MSU, and I will be one of your hosts today. My co-host today is Natalie Hoytel of the University of Minnesota. Mike Reinke from MSU is our Zoom engineer. Uh, Natalie, what are we up to today? All right. So today, we actually only have one guest. We typically have two, uh, but we have kind of a super guest today um, who's truly an expert. So Chris Smart from Cornell is joining us today um, to talk about a really difficult disease of vegetables called Phytophthora capsaicea. So Chris is a pathologist who has spent quite a bit of time um, studying this pathogen um, she actually works at a research farm that is deliberately infected with this strain of Phytophthora for research purposes. Um, we found kind of a fun connection. Chris grew up in Minnesota and Michigan, studied uh, plant pathology at MSU. So um, just a reminder for listeners, um, if you would like to ask Chris questions, you can put them in the chat box or in the Q&A. You can upvote questions in the Q&A as we go, um, and we will tackle those at the end of the show. Um, so let's just get started with the questions here. Um, Chris, can you just give us a little bit of background? Tell us about Phytophthora capsaicea. Um, where did it come from? What different vegetables does it infect? What's significant about this particular pathogen? Sure. Well, first, let me just say thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. I'm really, really happy to be here. And I am completely impressed that you guys do this every week. So well done. Um, so Phytophthora capsaicea was actually first seen almost, well, just over 100 years ago in 1918 in New Mexico on hot peppers. And I know the history in the state of New York. And in the state of New York, it was first seen at a farmer's market in New York City in 1935. And it was seen on a watermelon. So right there, you know, that it goes to peppers and watermelon and they're not very closely related. Um, and that, interestingly, that watermelon in New York City came from Colorado. So in 1935, we know that it was in New Mexico, Colorado, and New York City. Um, so, so that history, I think, is really informative um, because it tells us that A, the pathogen has been around for a very long time, and B, it is very good at getting around on rotten fruit. So that watermelon that came from Colorado, no doubt was infected in a field in Colorado and then got moved by, by truck, I would assume, in 1935 uh, to New York City. And what we've seen um, happen here in terms of how it gets around, we know that um, many of our growers will trade trade fruit. So they have markets or market stands and, oh, I have summer squash and, you know, you have uh, bell peppers and let's switch so we both have some of each of those. 
And I have talked to more than 10 farmers in New York and the Northeast in general that have said, yeah, I know in this field, I throw culls. And cull fruit is a, a way that we know for a fact that Phytophthora spreads. So this is, the pathogen is a water mold. And it, so anytime you get lots of rain, uh, it thrives. It can attack the fruit and make, you know, really large lesions that, that look like they almost have been sprinkled with powdered sugar. It can also cause a root and crown rot. And boy, on peppers and on summer squash and zucchini, if you look at a crown, you can just see it shrivel right up. And, yeah. and there's, there's no way that that plant can survive because the entire vascular system at the crown has been choked off. Um, mm -hmm. And so there are many aspects to this pathogen that really make it devastating, including the host range, which is all solanaceous crops except potato, all cucurbit crops. And then we also now know that it can go to um, some of the beans, snap beans and, mm -hmm. uh, and a few others. So it's, it's really devastating. How is... Um... Um, we can generally put diseases into a few categories, right? We've got bacteria, we've got viruses. There are very distinct things about those different categories. We've also got fungus, which I think Phytophthora often gets lumped into, but it's not. You said it's a water mold. What is that all about? Yeah, so you're exactly right that Phytophthora does frequently get lumped in with what I call the true fungi. Um, you know, things that many of you seen, uh, early blight or septoria would be a true fungus. Whereas um, things like downy mildew, late blight, phytophthora, those are all water molds or oomycetes. And the water molds, as you might imagine, love water. And one of the things that makes them unique, but also devastating, is that they can produce spores that can swim in the water. Oh. And, and if, if you were able to see me, I do this uh, demonstration. Um, it, like if you think about a tadpole, a tadpole has a tail and it mm -hmm. will wiggle that tail and move forward. Mm -hmm. Well, phytophthoras and, and this whole group of water molds are really unique in that they have two, we call them flagella, but two essentially arms coming out of the spore, which would be like the center of your stomach. And rather than just flapping them to move forward, one of them reaches out and pulls it forward like it's doing the front crawl in a swimming huh. pool. And the other one actually acts as a rudder steering it. So, wow. yeah, so those spores can swim and not only can they swim, but they can sense a host plant and swim right towards it. So that is quite different from like an aerial blown spore. That is quite different. Wow. Exactly. Like the, like the rust you were talking about earlier. So that's yeah. amazing. I, I, the number that I have heard thrown around um, is that if it's able to, I think, complete the sexual part of its life cycle, it can live in the soil for up to 12 years. Is that correct? Can you talk a little bit about those dynamics? Yeah. So um, in addition to having uh, these swimming spores, if there are two mating types in the same field and in every single field that I have ever tested in, in the US, in the Northeast, other ones I've tested, both mating types are present. They can form these really thick walled, long lived spores called oospores. And as you said, Natalie, those are the sexual spores. And um, 
we have done uh, some trials that have shown that those sexual spores can survive in the soil for more than 10 years. And um, uh, Mohamed Babadus at the University of Illinois has also done some studies showing um, that these spores can live for a long time. Of course, each year there are fewer and fewer, assuming mm -hmm. you don't plant a host in there and build up the inoculum. Okay, so so every year they, I don't like a weed, they would germinate under certain conditions, but if they can't find a host, then they just, they go away. Right, oh, they okay. So there's a, there's a drawdown. There's a drawdown. You got that. Okay. It's just, just like a, a seed bank. Okay. Um, mind if I ask the next question, Natalie? So you are, are in a very unique position, Chris, in that you, I, you get to work at a farm that deliberately has this disease um, on it for research purposes. What can you tell us about that farm and what, what kind of questions you look to answer there and what you've learned? Right, so I am, as a plant pathologist, I am incredibly fortunate to have a nine acre farm. It's only a mile from my office. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm located at the Geneva campus of Cornell, which is about an hour north of the main campus on, in Ithaca, New York. So in Geneva, New York, we have uh, lots of space for field research, about 800 acres. And a mile from my office, I have nine of those acres that are specifically devoted to research on Phytophthora capsaicae and the, the diseases that, that it causes, the, you know, the root rots, the fruit rots, all of that. And um, the farm was started, uh, boy, more than 10, 12 years ago now. Uh, in 2007 is when we first built it. And um, uh, on these nine acres, we actually have four two-acre plots. So we can do separate sets of experiments in those two-acre plots. The other acre, we have a barn and equipment that is used specifically on the farm. And the farm is um, enclosed by an electric fence. And that always, when I have lots of visitors, and that always makes people laugh because, you know, they're like, it's an electric fence, you know, and you're not going to keep the pathogen in. And that is exactly right. Um, but uh, while, while almost all of the vegetable farms uh, in, in the area already have Phytophthora blight, none of the research land, those 800 acres, none of that had Phytophthora blight on it. And I came quickly to realize that my friends in horticultural sciences were not overly enthusiastic about me inoculating <laughs> all sorts of land with a pathogen that might not leave for 10 to 20 years. So that uh, actually the, the growers in the state of New York, because Phytophthora had become such a huge issue, they lobbied the state legislature working with the Farm Bureau and the state of New York funded the Phytophthora blight farm for research specifically devoted to Phytophthora blight. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, That's and, a grassroots so, effort. Yeah, so let, let me say also that um, it's incredibly humbling, right? That, uh, and, and I think it, it shows the importance of the impact that the disease has had on this, the vegetable production in the state of New York. That both the growers um, realize that, that we need to find solutions and that the state legislature also um, was willing to put funding into that. Wow. Um, so I would like to ask what the main takeaways are, like big things that you've learned. But I think before we do that, it makes sense to back up just a little bit and talk about prevention. Um, we kind of had this discussion at the beginning where like 
we think this is kind of new in the Midwest. I only know two farms in Minnesota that are dealing with Phytophthora. Um, it very well could be more widespread and people just haven't reported it or don't know what it is. Um, and Ben, I get the sense that it's kind of the same. It's like emerging here and there in Michigan. Well, it's it's been around and certain people definitely know they've had it, but uh, there's just a lot of people who get it diagnosed each year. And it's like a, with each person, it's like advising diagnosis of diabetes or something like that. It's uh, it's like a, it's something that will change the way you do things. Um, and you really have to be very present of mind with how to do things now differently than you did before. And so with each one, it just seems like uh, and it's just like a lot more on, on, on your plate. So, <laughs> so it doesn't, it is new for, for each person. It, you have to treat it as though it's very new. You can't treat anybody as if like this is old hat because it's a big deal for, for someone to get it for the first time and to work so with So maybe it. first, like let's talk a little bit. And Chris, you mentioned a couple of strategies like not trading fruit at markets, but for someone who doesn't have Phytophthora, but who grows pumpkins or any cucurbits or any solanaceous crop, what, what should people be thinking about? Should this be like, I mean, I don't want to scare people, but like, should this be on people's minds and what should people be doing? <laughs> well, that's a great question. And, and I, let me start by saying that uh, I, I give lots of talks to, to growers about Phytophthora blight. And th this fits in exactly to your question. I can look across a room and I can tell in part because I know them, but just in part because of the amount they're paying attention. I can tell the growers that have Phytophthora blight and growers that don't. Huh. And on so many instances, I have not yet done this, but on so many instances, I just want to say, hey, you with the bagel, put the bagel, like you're the person I can help the most, right? <laughs> the person that does not yet have Phytophthora is the person we can help the most because we, there are ways to keep it off your farm. I mean, as, as um, you know, it, it, it's impossible, as I think uh, uh, Ben said to me in, in an early, earlier conversation, it's impossible to keep flood water off a farm for sure. But there are other ways to keep the pathogen off your farm. Um, you know, paying attention to what comes onto your farm. If you know that a grower has a field, a neighbor has a field with Phytophthora blight, you know, making sure you're not trading equipment, um, being really mindful about what comes onto your farm and, and, and what, you know, what, what you do once it gets there. Cull piles, you know, every plant pathologist, people, every grower I know rolls their eyes at me. Cull piles kill. They're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> because, because you, you, I understand you need, you have cull fruit, you need to deal with them. But um, if there's any Phytophthora in a cull pile and it rains, remembering that all of those spores love water, wherever that goes, that's where the pathogen will go. So really being mindful about where water moves on your farm. And the other thing that's very important, I had a student do an entire PhD dissertation on this, is surface irrigation water. So if there are growers in the area that have Phytophthora, frequently it will rain and the runoff water from that farm will have Phytophthora in it. My hmm. students surveyed um, surface irrigation store sources, including rivers and streams, the Erie Canal, which is actually used for irrigation here in New York State, um, as well as um, uh, irrigation ponds on farm. Mm -hmm. So we had one grower, it, it's 
it's really heartbreaking, right? So we had a grower who had one field that had Phytophthora blight, but you know, had 200 acres of land that did not. It became quite dry and they needed to irrigate the farm. Well, on most farms, irrigation drainage tile is gonna feed back to your irrigation pond, including the drainage tile from the field that had Phytophthora blight. So they essentially irrigated their farm with Phytophthora, and you could actually see the pattern of disease from the surface irrigation water that had the pathogen. When my mm. students did a survey, we found Phytophthora capsaicae in more than 50% of the surface irrigation sources across the state of New York. Oh my gosh, that's huge. And, and, and Mary Hosbeck has done similar studies in Michigan and has found yeah. it there as well. You're right, I remember that. So, so if you don't have it on your farm yet, being very attentive to what comes on your farm and if it comes from a farm that has Phytophthora blight and really thinking about irrigation sources is critical. Um, so with new food safety laws and things uh, as well, uh, surface water uh, does not seem to be uh, the greatest source for, for irrigating vegetables, either sensitive to Phytophthora or eaten raw. And well water is the way to go if you could afford it or you have the opportunity. Um, so then I guess once it's, uh, once it's present, once it's been diagnosed, what, what do the best, uh, management plans include? Right. Great question. So the, the best, and, and this is that you can do this before or after you've been diagnosed with Phytophthora, but improving drainage to prevent standing water is critical. The longer you have standing water, the greater the opportunities are for Phytophthora to germinate and release those swimming spores and have those spores get to the plant. So finding ways to increase drainage is key. Whether it's uh, subsoiling to break through that hard pan layer, adding additional drain tiles, um, anything that you can do to increase drainage. And and to be honest, putting susceptible crops on fields that are more well-drained. I mean, of course, all crops want to be on the field that is the most well-drained and, you know, but, but, you know, finding ways to increase drainage is key. Along those lines, if you're not growing a vining crop, having it on a tall raised bed, uh, say a pepper or a summer squash will also help because that will help keep those roots out of where the standing water might be. Um, so uh, a lot of growers in, in New York and I assume in, well actually I've seen in Michigan and I assume in Minnesota might grow on um, raised beds with a plastic mulch and a, and a trickle irrigation. And minding irrigation water and how much water there is is also really important. Um, one year in a drought, I had a grower call me, I think it was 2016, we had a severe drought here in New York. And they said, you know, Chris, I think I have uh, Phytophthora blight. Would you, could you come out and make sure? And I'm like, how could you have Phytophthora blight? It hasn't rained in, in a month. And like, well, you know, we had, a, mm. we had an irrigation uh, riser break and we had a flood. And that was enough to get those overwintering spores to germinate and cause an outbreak. Huh. Um, so so I, can I, I just ask a clarifying yeah. question? It sounds like in order for the overwintering spores to germinate, there needs to be an, ex an excess of water. It's not, it's not going to happen if things are like very well drained and controlled or is that, do we not know that much? What does it take for those spores to germinate? Yeah, so there's definitely a correlation between 
standing water and more disease. Yeah. Um, at, you know, the, the thing that all of us researchers would love would be to know how to get those overwintering spores to germinate so we could force them to germinate, not have a host around, they would all die off and, mm -hmm. the, and the problem would be gone. We, we, we don't know that. Um, okay. We do know that water is needed, but you know, there, there have certainly been instances in well-drained soils where we've still had outbreaks. So, so th there, there's an interesting um, biocontrol technique that's used in Michigan with sugar beets that are susceptible to the sugar beet cyst nematode in planting very specific varieties of oilseed radish. They're able to attract the nematode, which is it's not a f disease. It's a it's um it's an arthropod, and it go it will swim to the radish. It will go into the radish, but then it's unable to complete its life cycle. Essentially, drawing down that nematode in a in a large way. With with this pathogen and its ability to actually like seek uh, what it wants, are there any have anything is there anything come up like that where there's like traps? They're able to successfully reproduce on everything that they get into, it sounds like. Yes, if it's a host, they seem to be able to successfully reproduce. Okay. Um, there is, uh, um, I have a, a colleague, I think you had her on, Meg McGrath, mm -hmm. um, in Long Island. And she's done some trials um, with different cover crops and, and turning them in in hopes of, um, A, increasing organic matter, anytime you increase soil health, you're gonna make a healthier plant and that will be helpful. Um, but also that the isothiocyanates or the breakdown products of some of those mustards might help to reduce the oospore population, um, those overwintering spores in the soil. Um, she's still, there are many folks still working on that, um, but there's nothing that we've seen that can serve as really a trap. Anything that it can attack, it will reproduce in. I will also say though, uh, the cover crops reminds me that um, anything that growers can do to put a barrier between the soil and the plant will be helpful, uh, especially when it comes to the fruit rot. A lot of times I'll go into a pumpkin field and you'll see where those pumpkins are, are laying right there on the soil. You know, that's a spot where water might tend to pool and that's where you see those first infections of Phytophthora on the pumpkin. And um, you know, so anything that can serve as a barrier, the, the plastic mulch helps with that. Um, anything that can serve as a barrier. Some smaller growers that I work with uh, will put straw on the ground. I have a colleague actually in South America and um, they have uh, actually, a, it's like a little plastic stand and they'll have uh, people go out and put melons on these little plastic stands just, just to keep them a little bit above the soil, which will help reduce um, the amount of disease they see. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. I, I know a few growers who are um, working with, so like terminating winter rye and rather than flail mowing it, just like using a roller crimper to create kind of a bed of rye straw. So that seems to work fairly well and be a little bit less labor intensive, perhaps <laughs> raising each yeah, right. off the ground. Yeah, that's, a, know, that's an uh, interesting idea. In, in peppers, that will actually help uh, reduce the incidence of white mold on pepper as well. A anything that's in the soil and has spores that are coming from the soil onto the plant, uh, that crimping of the rye will help with. I, I just have to add that um, in some trials I've done in Michigan and growers I've spoken to here, the soil type has a big, has a lot to do with whether that would be a good idea or not. Um, if you've there's a lot of clay soil in the part of the state that I'm in, and um, 
to have a, a standing rye mulch um, in that environment can hold moisture a little too well, and it can get a little can get a little stifling down there. And and it's not usually the best idea, but on a sandy soil, it seems to work a little better. Um, yeah, the clay soil adds a lot of co complications because in uh, those growers stand to see the most benefits out of something like a raised bed, but the soil type is very difficult to work with into making raised beds. It's, a, it's sort of a conundrum. Absolutely. And, and that's interesting because this uh, clay soil is not as well drained, so you might be more likely to get Phytophthora because you have those pools of water. But if you have a sandy soil field that already has Phytophthora, it will spread through that field more quickly than through the field with clay soil because the water can move through the sand more quickly and that Phytophthora will move wherever the water goes. You're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't. Wow. Right? Hmm. Wow. So let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about sanitation. Um, I think this is one of the things that like, it's so easy to talk about and so hard to do and really requires a lot of like spatial thinking and sort of like just rearranging the way that you move through your fields based on how a pathogen moves through your fields is not very straightforward, but it's really important. Um, so I'm curious if you could just like kind of walk us through your routine. Like when you are going to the research farm, um, what is your process for like, doing sanitation as you enter, like throughout the day, as you leave? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as I said, we're fortunate. We have a, a barn and, and equipment that is specifically used on the farm. But when we walk into the barn, the first thing that we have to get onto the farm, there, well, first, there's big signs everywhere that says, do not leave this barn unless you're wearing your Phytophthora boots on the way to the field and on the door to your car it says, don't forget to switch into your street shoes, mm. right? So all, all of us that go onto the farm, uh, we have a big rack uh, with boots that we use specifically for that farm. And the reason is that uh, the pathogen survives in the soil and we know for a fact that anywhere the soil moves, the pathogen can move with it. So that's why we have boots. When we have visitors come onto the farm, which um, I do, we have field days, I encourage folks to come. We have boxes of the plastic booties that you can put over your shoes and we have everyone put those on and they come into the field. When they leave, they take them off and go back to their cars. So um, that's one very obvious thing that we do. When, I, when I'm going into a grower's field that I know has Phytophthora blade, I'll do the same thing. I'll put on the plastic boots, especially if I'm going to other farms. So when we're in the field, um, we're very mindful that anything we're using will either stay on the farm or will be washed. And really, we just wash things, our hands are, you know, if there's something, sometimes we're doing a study and we need to take fruit or something off, off the farm, um, we wash them with water. And the key is that you just need to get the soil off. As long as you get the soil off, um, you're okay. The trickier part comes when, you know, we need to bit, pull a larger piece of equipment onto the farm or something we have on the farm breaks, right? Equipment is really important and really difficult to clean. Uh, coming onto the farm, I, I, don't, I don't worry so much about equipment coming onto the farm because we, what we have is worse than what anyone has. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's nothing that they can bring onto the farm that we don't already have. 
Um, but leaving the farm is really, really critical critical. So uh, we have, uh, we use a uh, high, high power wash. And, and it, again, it's just water. Um, but you know, we'll get down on the ground if it's, you know, if it's a, a, a plow or something, we're on the ground, spraying off the tractor tires, spraying off every bit of that farm equipment to get the soil off so that we're not moving it off farm. And that is really hard to do. And it's hard, you know, it's, it's really hard. And, and, um, you know, I had one grower, you know, you were saying, uh, Ben, you know, the first time, the first, you know, this was the first time, I guess it was maybe two years ago that he had ever had Phytophthora on his farm. It was in a field of zucchini. And, you know, he's like, you, you know, a zucchini you pick every day, you know, so, and usually first thing in the morning. And so I'm like, well, you know, you would have to wash their boots and, you know, just exactly the concept of if you're moving from a field that has Phytophthora to a field that doesn't, everything has to be cleaned so that no soil or water is moving with you. And that's really, really hard to do. So it sounds like um, a little piece of advice that we give when it comes to food safety may also apply here. And that is when it comes to things like uh, washing hands and washing harvest containers and, and things like that, it, it has to be made easy or it isn't done at all. So, you know, like mindful placement of a power washer to where equipment will always be driving past so there doesn't involve special trips just to do a washing step might be one way to reduce um, a barrier to to washing equipment between um, forays into the field and out uh, off the farm and things like that and maybe the same for boots and I was wondering about the boots in particular I've got a lot of colleagues who they, they serve animal producers like I serve, serve vegetable producers. And there are some sanitar sanitary concerns there that um, in some cases, they will visit a farm and are, they have to take a shower upon entry. And they have like shower facilities and everything for all their workers. And so they shower, they suit up, they do the visit that they were going to do, and then they shower on the way out too. Um, that's pretty extreme, and I don't anticipate any vegetable growers giving me a shower. But with the boots, at a minimum, there are boot dips available within the animal world. There's all sorts of different veterinary uh, products uh, specifically for boot dips. And I was wondering if you, if you knew of any boot dips for this pathogen that, that you know kills the pathogen, something aside, maybe chlorine. Maybe chlorine. I mean, that would be the easy one. Uh, everyone could have some bleach, but if there's if that doesn't work, then what would? Right. So the the issue with boot dips is that any of those sterilants, whether it's chlorine, or, you know, quaternary ammonium salts, they will get bound by organic matter. So if you have a whole muddy boot that you're mm. putting into something that's going to sanitize it, it's the the sterilant is going to get immediately bound up by the mud, and it's not going to get to the pathogen. So the key is to use water to get that soil and other organic matter off the boot first and then put it into the, sanita the sanitation bin. Okay. And so if, if the soil is removed, it, based on what you had said before, it doesn't sound like it would be quite as important to even follow up with the sanitation step because the soil is where the pathogen is. Yeah. It, and there are, um, you know, the swimming spores, 
in theory, you could have some of those still on, on a boot after you washed it off. Ch chances are you wouldn't, but you could. And so, and so the sanitation of the boot, would, it's not going to hurt anything, um, but really getting the soil off is the key. Okay. So I want to ask you about um, tractors. So uh, the farms that I know that have this, like it is in a couple of fields, but not everywhere. And it's easy enough to have a different pair of boots, not how it's easy enough to have a whole separate tractor. Right. Um, so I, I would like to just have a very realistic um, guideline, like how long does it take you to adequately sanitize a tractor? And do you even think it's possible or do you recommend that people just have totally separate equipment for those fields? It, well, I, I'm guessing Minnesota <laughs> is not remarkably different from New York and it's just not gonna happen that there's totally separate equipment for those fields. Yeah. Um, so for us, I would say it probably takes, and for, you know, I only have nine acres, so it's a fairly small tractor. It's not, you know, huge, uh, probably a half an hour, but yeah. <laughs> That's better than I expected. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you get soaking wet. It, it's not, it's not a job that anyone ever wants. Right. <laughs> and, and so I have to say that, that, that everyone goes out of their way to creatively think of how to get whatever job we need done done with the equipment that's already on the farm and or you know how can we fix that there rather than having it leave the farm just because it's hard to yeah I've, I've um i've heard the advice given to that if you know of a certain section of the farm that has it and you know is actively expressing it too i mean it's easier to see when the plants are showing that yeah there's it's there harder to do this if no symptoms are present but if you know it's in a spot and You've got um, you've got like a harvest schedule. If you can arrange to harvest that spot last, then you you cut down on the number of cleanings you may have to do. Um, if you're going back and forth from the field to the to the stand or something like that, saving that infected area for last um, is is a way to sort of thoughtfully uh, think about how to reduce the number of times you may have to power wash something. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So I, I have a question for you, Chris. It's sort of a hypothetical, but I'm just wondering what, what you might what you might say. If your objective was to convert the, the blight farm in which you work into a profitable vegetable business, what what would you do in the first five years to try to to try to bring it in that direction? Well, so my my first answer, I'll, I'll get to a real answer, but my first answer is uh, for five years, I'd probably grow crops that were not susceptible. <laughs> well, that's a legit, that's a legit tactic. Yeah, but um, so we know that based on our research, some of the research we've done on the blight farm has been, you know, when can you go back into a field that you know has the pathogen? How many years is that? And we know that um, with a three-year rotation, we've gone in with uh, both susceptible and there are peppers that are resistant to phytophthora blight. And, um, and if, you, if, it's a, if it's a fairly dry year without a huge number of large rain events, you, you, can, you, can, you can get by. You, you, know, you might see an outbreak or two and then what we do is rogue and uh, growers will do this, rogue out the diseased plants and you know, maybe five plants, if it's peppers, uh, five plants around it, um, to rogue out an area to try to prevent that spread. Um, and and um, so uh, I would 
go in with a uh, resistant cultivar. We, one of the other things we do on the blight farm right now is work with both public and private breeders to test the level of resistance of um, peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, and all sorts of different cucurbits. Um, peppers are the, for sure the, the furthest along in terms of having cultivars that are resistant to Phytophthora blight. So I would go in with some of those resistant pepper cultivars. Um, and then I would uh, avoid you know, the wettest spots of the farm with the most susceptible crop. So put the most susceptible crop on the, the portion of the land that's driest. Um, I would use raised beds with plastic mulch, unless it was a vining, I was growing, if I were growing pumpkins, I wouldn't want to grow the pumpkins on the raised beds because then the fruit rolls off and it's actually in the furrow. Um, and then, and then I would be- Oh, you just gave me a crazy idea. <laughs> go, go for it, Ben. Like inverting where you put your plastic in your plants so that the row middles have the plastic and the plants grow out of the bare soil so that where the end, where they end up setting their fruit has, has the covering. Yeah. As long as the pathogen isn't uh, running from the bare soil into the, into the furrow. Oh yeah. Good point. Yeah. Wouldn't that just create a channel of water? Yeah. It, like it would just hold all of the water in the plastic. Mm, could be. Yeah. Perhaps if it was a landscape fabric instead. Yeah. But I think, I think using all of those sanitation techniques along with um, the, the resistant or, you know, there's levels of susceptibility, you know, those things that tend to be more resistant than, than less um, are, are the first tactics you really want to think about as long as you've done some subsoiling to, to increase drainage. Um, and then depending on if, uh, if it's a conventional or an organic farm that I'm working on, if uh, my farm would be, I would start thinking about um, a control strategy, especially if it, if, you know, it looked like there was going to be a wet stretch of weather. Okay. My control strategy, you mean fungicides? Yeah. And um, yes, uh, we have tested quite a few different, both organic and conventional fungicides for control. And um on the conventional side, uh, the fungicides that would control um, things like downy mildew or late blight on potato and tomato are the same group of fungicides you would use for Phytophthora control. Um, and then uh, in organic, um, uh, we have seen growers really uh, try to use the combination of something like oxidate to sterilize or copper, um, but it's much more difficult because um, there are currently no organic products that we've seen that are effective in the root or crown air. So that's really true. And I but, that, but it tends to, but uh, oxidate and copper may have some effect on something like a fruit rot. Yeah. So if it's off the ground, um, where, where I've seen data that oxidate can be effective is when growers have um, used it at, at harvest to ensure that there are n there's nothing on the fruit that is then going to infect when the when the fruit is in, in you know in a bin. Ah, okay. So uh, even if the fruit looks fine in the field, there still can be uh, infections that may have just happened in a rain event. And when you put it in that crate, you have a nice, warm, humid environment, and the pathogen can really take off, and you'll see a lot of disease. Which is the worst case scenario, right? You put yeah. every bit of input into your field, and then and then you have uh, you know buckets of winter squash that are that are rotting in the shed. Yeah. Which, um, so 
a little while ago, I talked with Meg McGrath about um, biofumigation with Phytophthora, and she was very enthusiastic and said it should absolutely be part of a management plan. Um, what is your take on that? <laughs> yeah, I think, it, so uh, again, um, biofumigation is going to work where, where uh, all fumigation works best when in a sandy soil with uh, a warm temperatures, right? Uh, to get fumigation, you need heat and volatile and you need a soil type that will enable or allow that volatile biofumigant or fumigant to spread. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Long Island, um, where Meg is, you know, they have more heat than we do in upstate New York and they have sandy soils. Um, in, in upstate, uh, we have tried some, so, the reason, I didn't say this, but the reason that uh, Cornell was happy to have me have a nine acre farm is that those nine acres are very wet and no one else really wanted them. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so when we have tried um, biofumigants on the blight farm, we haven't had a lot of success. And I think it is, you know, it's a very heavy soil. Um, we don't have nearly as much heat as what they would have in Long Island. And so we just haven't, we haven't seen that that effect um, I gotcha. but but I, I do completely agree with Meg that um, it is important and and the other thing is that we because it's specifically for research we can have a very high level of pathogen in the soil which which a, a grower would never see and that that makes it more difficult to, to test out um, the impact of something that might have a smaller but really important great um, so we yeah we've got maybe 15 minutes or so, should we like move on to listener questions? Yeah, I think maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we can idea. wrap up our last one. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, so let's just go straight to the Q&A. And we've got a question that I think was answered um, kind of tangentially. The question is, can eggplants get crown rot as well as fruit rot and leaf blight? You'd said that eggplants are tested for resistance, but I guess I wasn't sure um, what, what parts most affected. Yeah, so uh, the the person asking the question uh, is very astute. Eggplant, you uh, you almost always only see it on the fruit. Okay. Um, Similar I, to tomato, then. Uh, yes, and and if I inoculate it intentionally, I can see a leaf blight and a crown rot. But when I'm in a, a grower field in a commercial setting, um, it it's it's really in my experience, quite rare to see the crown rot. Occasionally you'll see some wilting or leaf symptoms, but really quite common to see uh, infections on the fruit. And those can come from splashing of the soil up onto the fruit, um, especially when those eggplants are smaller and the sepals are really quite large. And um, so the water will hang on those sepals. And then as the fruit grows, you can see that lesioning. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really devastating. Uh, this will happen with some of the resistant peppers where you have foliar and crown resistance, but not fruit resistance. So you look across the field and it looks fantastic. And then you go in to start harvest and you'll see that, you know, 50% of your fruit might have a lesion on it. Why? Why is that? What? It's the <laughs> same. Is it just, does it just have to do with the, the actual like molecular level, like the tissue structure and how the pathogen accesses it and the fruit is different than the root tissue so much that the roots can fight can I don't know just prevent it but the fruit can't yeah so so yeah several really cool questions wrapped into one there Ben um, <laughs> first off there are there are different genes 
that are responsible for, at least in pepper, we know that there are different genes responsible for the crown and foliar blight compared to the fruit, uh, the, the fruit resistance or susceptibility. And um, in terms of, of uh, how the pathogen infects, I had a student who was really studying um, when those swimming spores swim up to roots. Um, is there a difference between the resistant pepper and the susceptible pepper? And what she found was that the same number of zoospores uh, attached to the susceptible root and the resistant root, the same number germinated and the same number penetrated into the root. But in the susceptible pepper, the pathogen was just able to get into that core area of the root and really continue on. Whereas in the resistant, it penetrated and then was stopped. So there's clearly a genetic component in that resistant pepper that it doesn't involve the attachment or the getting into the plant, but it can stop it once it's in. Interesting. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I actually assume my guess was that oh it, it might it might attract the same number of swimming spores as zoospores, but they won't germinate and infect as well and and that was not the case at all. Did you see changes in the tissue? Was it like did it develop like a corkier root to kind of block them, or was it more like a yeah, so, like a plant defense response? Yeah, so you could see even in the resistant pepper she could see, we could see like little tiny brown lesions, but mm -hmm. they didn't expand and you didn't mm -hmm. get a corkier area, but we have looked at um, pathogens as the roots continue to grow. And what happens is that you get more lateral root growth. It's like the, the roots, the roots realize that, oh, that particular one, I, you know, it died. And so they have more lateral roots, but the infection is actually stopped. Yeah. Isn't that wow. cool? Cool. I know. Um, the other question, we got two more questions that were submitted. Actually, a couple of them are two-parters, or one of them the two-parter. Anyway, um, here's the one. In an area where there is limited spread of Phytophthora capsici, would there be benefits to mapping where the pathogen is to help growers when buying or renting land and equipment? So this sounds like mapping of a, a larger area, not just one's farm. Yes, um, that's a great question, and yes, absolutely. Um, uh, we've had growers in New York that have done that, and it's been really very successful um, in terms of um, what to plant. Oh, okay, we know that when we grew pumpkins, this was that, you know, can we put that into a longer term alfalfa or something like that? And so having those maps and, and coordinating them with, with people that you might be um, swapping land with uh, or in a, in a larger area is an excellent idea. There seems to, there would be a pretty significant like sociological angle to that. Yes. I think some people could could be could could feel very judged by that kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, that's an interesting question. I know there's a there's an insect in Michigan that affects broccoli pretty significantly, and um, there's a small group of growers who have worked among themselves to rotate. Um, like, so one grower grows broccoli this year, another grower grows broccoli the next year to keep that pest on the run because none of them have the land base required to effectively rotate it on one single farm. So that's one example of multiple farmers addressing a community problem um, that I, I don't see a lot of uh, other communities doing that. And maybe, maybe they could, maybe they should. And this could be a good example of that. Absolutely. 
that is a dream of mine that I like really encourage people to do that. I think it would be really cool to interview some of those folks just to talk about, like you said, the social dynamics of how that's managed. I'm in if you guys want to do a show. <laughs> <laughs> this last question, um, you could probably answer this in many ways. Um, the first part is what uh, crop rotation would you suggest for a five-year rotation for watermelons or any cucurbits? Um, right. So uh, growers in New York, I, I always say sweet corn and every grower that I know in New York is like, Chris, how much sweet corn do you want me to grow? Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, uh, what farmers, one of, the, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, you know, is it possible for a farmer to continue to grow vegetables uh, once they have Phytophthora? And the answer is yes. And um, for my farmers that do, their rotation will look like um, uh, sweet corn, uh, brassica of some sort. Um, so, so these are farms that, that might grow mixed vegetables. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, then then um, they might they might have um, let's see uh, well the one farmer I know grows basil so again a non-host and then they might go back in with uh, you know depending on the diversity on the farm but they might go back in after three or four seasons with a resistant pepper and start with that resistant pepper um, because that's not going to build up the inoculum. That's going to continue to reduce the amount of inoculum. Certainly, you're not going to want to go back in with something like a summer squash or a zucchini, which are really the most susceptible um, for, for the full five years. You, you know, Chris, when, when you described the way that the pathogen interacts with those resistant peppers, it almost does sound like that nematode trap crop in that they home in on the pepper and then are unable to complete um, their life cycle. Does that, yeah, does that we, sound right to you? Yeah, to some extent. Um, okay. You know, I, we, don't, we don't know in the field if, if that pepper is actually attracting, um, you know, we don't know enough yet to know if that's the case. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and I will say that the other things that, along with that rotational strategy that um, the, the growers I'm working with, so uh, I'm working with a, a grower who's had significant um, phytophthora palms for more than 15 years and every year they make sure that they're subsoiling their they don't want any hard pans um, they're uh, sanitizing any trellising stakes that they may use um, so making sure that those get uh, completely sanitized they actually um, built like a giant steamer and so they'll put their trellising stakes into a steamer um, that you know has boiling hot water, you know, steam, and they'll leave them in there for an hour and that will sanitize those trellising stakes. Um, they are remarkably careful about which field they go to and when, and um, again, try to make as high of a raised bed as they can and um, are very mindful of where they're irrigating. From. And, so, and they continue to be successful. There's one angle on uh, the question that was submitted that hasn't been addressed. Um, takes a little more thought, I think. So watermelon is a very space hogging crop. And let's say you just have a set rectangular area in which this is a problem and watermelons are in it one year. The following year to rotate to something that's not susceptible, um, you've got a few options, but some of them I feel like, like basil, if you were doing an entire field of basil, the size of a, like a, it's right. a lot of basil, a lot of basil. that basil. becomes, that becomes a, 
uh, struggle, it would may, it might be filled with multiple different crops in a given year, especially if like pumpkins, yeah, or uh, watermelon is part of the rotation, and that's the susceptible one. That's a that's a acre hog yeah. that you need to be mindful with how you then fill with things that are not hosts. Sweet corn's a pretty good pretty good candidate, but like you said, um, sweet corn. there's a there's there can be gluts of sweet corn for sure. And and then that's what, we, that's what I've seen with growers um, who have mostly seen it in pumpkins. They can do sweet corn, but they just don't have a market for like all of the other things. And so they'll have kind of a mixed, like a few rows of onions, a few rows of herbs. But that is the challenge that at least for folks who are growing like sweet corn and pumpkins, it tends to be at a totally different scale than some of the other mixed vegetables. And so mashing up those markets can be really challenging. Right. And we have growers that will grow beets and carrots, but if you don't have a market for that many beets and carrots, then it doesn't make any sense to do that. Um, yeah. We have other growers that have gone into some of the small grains. Um, and, and, you know, the, the growers who, who don't have as diversified of, of a market base, those tend to be the growers that will actually swap land with the dairy farmer next door and, and put that field into uh, alfalfa um, for Five years, three years. Alfalfa is a neat, a neat tool in a, in a crop rotation for things like this, mm -hmm. it sounds like. So there was a second part to this question. Um, if you are feeding the calls to chickens or other animals, um, can it survive through the manure? That is a great question. And remarkably, I have an answer and a very short story. Um, <laughs> so, so yes, um, the oospores can survive through uh, oh my gosh. Uh, some, at least some digestive tracts, that is known. Um, and it is absolutely known that um, they can survive through worms. Uh, I had growers, uh, there was a ins one instance in New York and an instance in North Carolina where uh, people fed calls to worms to produce vermicompost and then sold the vermicompost. Oh no that was already pre-inoculated with the pathogen. Mm. So the worm gut is not as severe as some other animals, um, but that was really a, a step back. And, and um, there, have, I, there have been reports of, of chicken and I think sheep. I have not done the studies on animals myself. I've, I've, read, I've read reports. I, I know for a fact about the worms and I've read reports on the, on the chicken. And, uh, uh, along those same lines, a grower had asked me once, um, especially if he uh, put chicken manure on a field because uh, it, it can burn quite easily and then set it on fire. If that would then kill, right, that was my response, Natalie, <laughs> but if that would kill uh, the oospores. And the thing is, is that the fire, it would not get hot enough um, down deep enough to kill the oospores, right? Because the oospores are going to be anywhere in the first 12 to 18 inches of that of that soil right and, and as far as you can plow in so think of a giant pumpkin that was infected and that might have a million of those oospores in it if it's a big enough pumpkin right so you're tilling that in and that's going to be in that till layer which is you know maybe maybe a foot and it's certainly not going to get hot enough down down that far wow yeah so yeah i did not expect the answer to that quite i never expected the question about <laughs> for survival through the guts of chickens, but I'm so glad it was asked because that seems like, I mean, I talk about, it, it seems like a, a very rational approach to, to handling calls. Um, 
and it's a question I get when growers so often will be, you know, walking down a row of tomatoes and when they, the harvest crews touch a soft tomato, they just throw it in the row middle and keep going. And then you end up with this row middle, you know, with crushed tomatoes, stepped on tomatoes, they're rotting. They, they could be, they could have phytophthora. They might not. Same with pumpkins, even harder with pumpkins. If you're thinking about like, okay, well that one's soft. How do I remove it? and put it someplace where they all go. And this is just like the death pit where this is where it all goes. It, it, that's an investment in time and messiness. Um, but I guess it wouldn't be so different if you were putting them in a, in a food sty for chickens or pigs versus a, like a death pit, but still, um, yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. So, Chris, we've got one other question that was not submitted. It was when we thought of ourselves that we thought it'd be a good wrap up. Phytophthora can feel like a death sentence. Um, do you have any words of encouragement for growers who who get who have some ground that's diagnosed with it? Yeah, um, you know, I I know I've been on farms and it absolutely can feel like a death sentence. But I have worked with you know quite a few now farmers that have had the pathogen for more than a decade, and and they're still very successful. Um, some of those, some of those uh, farmers before they had it were the people that said, you know, I don't have the time or the money to subsoil all my land or to retile, and since then have done all sorts of subsoiling and retiling to to improve drainage. So it does change the way um, that that the the mindset of the vegetable grower is. You know, it, it, you think about things that you might not have thought about as much anymore, um, but. It is not a death sentence. There are there are ways to to help mitigate the problem and work through it, and it is absolutely possible um, to be a successful grower and manage Phytophthora at the same time. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's probably a, a nice positive note to end on. Um, so, Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining us this week. I had a really good time. I learned a lot. Really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Uh, ben, do you want to tell us what's coming up for next week? Yeah, next week is the last episode of the season, and we're going to be sort of having a bookend to some to a subject we started earlier in the season with Brad Burgerford and Nathan Johaning. Both of them are pumpkin growers in their own personal lives, but they also work in extension at Ohio State University and uh, University of Illinois. And we're just going to be talking about finishing pumpkins. It's usually around this time of year when we get a lot of questions about uh, the upcoming harvest, whether things are going to make it, what can you do now to make harvest better or more profitable with so many, with so precious few weekend sales between now and, and Halloween. Um, that's what we're going to be talking about. So it'll be at the same place, same time, and uh, hope to see you there. So um, this is, this whole production, the whole thing, the whole season was supported by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. And um, I think we're going we'll, we're gonna to depart now. So I thank you both for the time that you had for today. Um, I hope you have a good rest of the week. Thank yeah. you. You as well.